Greetings and welcome to the Matt Asher Radio Show coming at you from Bore Bay Studios where the waters are shallow and the conversations are deep. Each week on the show we explore the unknown knowns, the fringes of science and culture, the borderlands between truth and possibility. If you happen to be in South Florida, you might be listening to the show live at 6 p.m. on Saturdays on Keys Talk 96.9 or 1025 FM. If so, please note that every episode is also uploaded afterwards to mattasher.com and available on our podcast feed. Do a search for The Filter on your favorite podcast app. Before we begin, a couple announcements. First, my home station, Keys Talk, has extended the range of their signal to reach all the way north of Miami, down to, so I have been told, La Habana, Cuba, so bienvenidos to my new listeners. Secondly, I do now have a substack, mattasher.substack.com, where I post articles, both for free and paid. I suspect that one of those articles will come up during my conversation today with my guest, Andrew Thurman. Andrew is a tech reported at Coindesk, the number one source for crypto news. He formerly worked as a weekend editor at Cointelegraph, a partnership manager at Chainlink, and a co-founder of a smart contract data marketplace startup. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. What is good? <laughs> what is good is talking about all things related to crypto, even though this isn't a crypto show. In particular, I wanted to talk on some topics that are kind of hot right now. And just to let the listeners know, though I do have a, a background that is somewhat technical, we're going to try to keep this focused on culture, economics, and implications, and won't go too deep into the weeds of the technology. This is not that kind of discussion. So don't be worried. We, we're going to try to avoid those lands and start with artwork, digital artwork, otherwise known as NFTs. What is an NFT? Uh, an NFT is, best way to think about an NFT is to um, not really try and approach it from uh, uh, building on your current understanding of ownership. I think that's where a lot of people sort of break down and fail. What you need to do to first understand an NFT is to approach it from a kind of abstract and and conceptual path. Uh, you could so talk about start maybe by what does it stand for? What is the the N F and the oh, T? There? Sure, uh, non fungible token, which I'm sure will immediately clear up all of the uh, uh, you know. Perhaps not, uh, but maybe we'll 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 get there. Yeah, go ahead. So so you've got a non fungible token. Um, which is, and actually to kind of avoid any of the technical stuff, just think of it as an ownership claim to a digital asset. Is that a fair way to put it? Um, it's not an ownership claim to the extent that you can prove ownership of at any time. Um, you can do very particular things with your NFT. You can buy and sell it. You can transfer it. Um, there is some confusion about whether or not the NFT refers to a piece of media or is in and of itself a piece of media or some object or, um, you know, it might be tied to a physical object in certain cases, but that's for a little bit later. I think um, the way I try to approach explaining NFTs is by uh, uh, first breaking down the notion of ownership in the abstract. Um, and that's the, the the best and easiest place to start, because if you try to explain NFTs before doing that, uh, quickly, you, people just get overwhelmed and start shaking their heads. So starting with what ownership actually is, have you seen the movie Pulp Fiction? I have. Uh, are you familiar with the Golden Watch? Yes. Uh, that famous scene from Christopher Walken in which he uh, gives uh, Bruce Willis's character a watch that he carried in his anus for two years 
and who his dear friend, who was also at a Hanoi prison camp, carried in his anus for five years. But prior to that, uh, it had been owned in Bruce Willis's character's family for multiple generations, had been through multiple world wars. And this is why these two men uh, were willing to undergo this extreme physical discomfort to make sure that this object gets into Bruce Willis's hands. Um, this to me is a, a kind of extreme example, you know, of the lengths that people are willing to go to to maintain a kind of narrative around uh, a, a form of ownership, right? Bruce Willis was willing to go to extreme lengths to make sure that he got and kept his watch. In Pulp Fiction, he goes through the most absurd interpretation of Joseph Campbell's hero story anyone's ever seen to recover this watch that his partner had lost or uh, left at their apartment. Um, and the reason why is be is because he, he he sort of invented a story about this object, right? This this the the lengths he's willing to go to to protect it far exceed its material utility or the price it would have fetched on an open market. It's special to him. Exactly. As a, it's an artifact that is important to him, and this one artifact is nothing at all like other watches that might look the same. Exactly. This, this, its value and its uniqueness is rooted in narrative and not in some sort of um, rational economic thinking around the object. And this, this, this is endemic in how humans deal with art and collectibles in particular, but also ownership of all kinds. Um, uh, the psychologist Werner Munsterberger, uh, you know, he compares the phenomena of collecting, um, you know, it's rooted in a lot of the same sort of mental processes and pathways that make a six-year-old want to cling to a teddy bear. This isn't, you know, based on uh, 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 the value of the thing. It's wrapped up in layers and layers of magical thinking. We we imbue this thing with uh, a value and worth far beyond um, anything that makes uh, a kind of frank logical sense. Far beyond what its commercial value would be. Exactly. It's It's magical thinking all the way down. So once you're approaching, you know, notions of art and collectible ownership from this space where you're thinking about the uh, the collectors as fundamentally irrational creatures, then yeah, NFTs start to make a whole lot more sense. So I, I like that description a lot, and it explains, uh, or I guess goes partway to explaining the, um, the, the strangeness that we see in terms of the financial moves related to this, though I think that uh, a, a certain aspect of that is financial shenanigans, which I, I think we'll get into. But uh, in general, though, this is, so you've got a story that's being told about some digital artifact, but it is still a digital artifact. And what are the give some examples of some of the nfts that have been out there and selling um the the trend probably started with crypto kitties crypto kitties was a very um pared down very simple game built on the ethereum blockchain you could take these collectibles these nfts and use them to breed and um there was uh, a couple other functionalities but it's basically a breeding game digital tamagotchis you combine two uh nfts two crypto kitties and they do some you know digital hanky panky and make a new crypto kitty um more modern interpretations have been uh profile pick projects these are usually runs of 10,000 NFTs, um, and people use them in social media to represent themselves. Um, In-game items are also tremendously popular. 
you know, there are many examples, uh, player unknowns, battlegrounds, Fortnite, um, uh, Counter-Strike. Uh, lots of these games have digital items that have real world value because they're extremely rare. They only open in very particular quote unquote loot boxes and, um, NFTs are uh, enabling folks to um, preserve those items and own them past, say, the game shutting down. Uh, finally, NFTs have become very popular for digital forms of media that have historically been difficult to sell in an art market. Um, there are plenty of well-renowned photographers and, um, you know, movie artists, but it's very difficult to, you know, what do you do? Do you put that on a flash drive and then you sell the flash drive? There's been some you know, issues surrounding how you market these things that have prevented them from really uh, hitting the level of market saturation that physical objects such as paintings have. And NFTs solve some of those pain points. I want to get at that idea of using them specifically as profile picks because that's maybe the most common way that you encounter them. Someone will purchase an NFT or the the rights to this digital image as it, as they're interpreting that, and then they'll use that as their profile pick, and that's a or avatar. That's a kind of it's a way for them to signal uh, something about their interests and also a way to signal, I guess, I have I have money and a, a play for status and signaling generally that I am associating myself with the NFT movement and I have, you know, I've put some money into this and gotten something that others should regard as cool out of it. Does that seem like the vibe of the people who are using this as profile picks? I I can definitely see that as an outsider's view, yes. Okay, so give me the insider's view. I mean, I'm seeing these phenomena like people who actually engage in this stuff. Um, they're among the loudest faction, but there's plenty of folks who are doing it. Um, and and I, I guess the popularity of the phenomena is generally explained as uh, one of flexing, right? Mm -hmm. People get this profile pick and they own a piece from the same collection that uh, NBA superstar Steph Curry. That was the story I was telling. Yeah. Just keep going then. Mm -hmm. And it's all about. It's all about this uh, sense of inclusivity, and it's the digital equivalent of a Rolex or a Ferrari or what have you. Um, however, I've seen multiple examples where the you know phenomena of in-group signaling is instead um, you know it's being done a little bit differently. A great example is um, uh, Gitcoin's um, profile pick run. They did the uh, Gitcoin robots. They sold, I believe, 10,000. It raised 2.4 million for public goods. There have been many other instances, uh, Lobby Lobsters being a classic, where um, people raised a couple million dollars uh, to set up a lobbying organization on behalf of crypto in D.C. Um, I think the current level of money um, makes it seem like it's all, you know, rappers and celebrities and a bunch of Internet nerds who happen to be able to afford uh, hanging out with them in this way. But in fact, um, you know, once this current hype cycle dies down, I think the trend is going to continue, but we're going to start seeing more of these um, alternative forms of in-group signaling. It won't just be signaling wealth and status and power. It'll instead be signaling participation in a broader culture or movement or cause. I should note here as we're talking about the use of these images, there's nothing inherent in the NFT verse that... Uh, that is self-enforcing as far as the rights of these things go. So uh, I could right now, if I wanted to, grab somebody else's profile pic who paid money 
for that NFT and I could use it as my own profile pic. If the person had a problem with that, they would have to try to take it up with Twitter. I don't think they'd get very far with that or whatever, you know, whatever website I was using as, as the profile pic. So the, the ownership claim that you have, it gives you the ability if you have a, a, a private key, try not to get, I guess, too technical here, but if you have, if you have access to a way to directly transfer that, then you get a, a chain of ownership, that chain that, uh, that tells, I guess, a different story, the cryptographic version of the story of the watch going from one person's, uh, rear to another, to another, uh, through, through history. But there really is, because this is a digital app, artifact, there's nothing that really prevents someone else from saying, no, actually, I'm the one or I want to use this or I'm going to do something with this particular image. That is the nature of digital stuff. Ones and zeros are infinitely copyable. And yet there must be the cultural level that enforces a stigma on people who would want to try to use a profile pic of an NFT that wasn't theirs. Yeah, I talked about this exact phenomena with the British artist uh, Damien Hirst when he did his NFT job. Damien Hirst, for the listeners, maybe most known for the shark in formaldehyde, right? Yes. Um, uh, oh, God, what's the name of that one? It's such a good title. Um, the concept of death in the mind of some, the impossibility of death in the mind of someone living. Um, so what did Damien Hirst say about uh, about that? Well, his question um you know, the the question that he had for himself, you know, when when it comes to this idea of ownership um, as it as it pertains to somebody else being able to, quote unquote, right click, save your NFT. Right. Um, what he asked is what's more important is the Mona Lisa more important or is the Mona Lisa on a thousand postcards, posters and, you know, parodied all over the Internet? Is that the more important thing? Um in the real world, you know, for some reason, humans recognize that ownership, you know, uh, uh, just because I can make a incredibly HD, perfect recreation of the Mona Lisa, it is not the Mona Lisa, because the Mona Lisa possesses some sort of magical attribute by virtue of having been touched, uh, what was it, Da Vinci's hand, or whoever it may be. Um, this idea that that doesn't transfer that that magic attitude doesn't transfer because somebody else can copy your NFT is, I think, something that uh, uh, comes down to a matter of choice. Choice to believe in that story or not, in that sense. Exactly. That's exactly right. And and you know, I I I often say, you know, people who say NFTs are dumb and stupid and not real, they're entirely right. But you know, neither is your your model train set. Neither is your grandmother's wedding dress. That thing is stupid and dumb and you should throw it out. It has no value and it has no secondary market value. The, the value is in your head. This is all just made up nonsense. I, I, I get that argument, though. At the same time, this is something new in the sense that previously anything that would be a collectible or a, a physical art uh, artifact with a, a particular history, whether that was inside of people's anatomy or not, um, <laughs> is, is, is inherently scarce, right? Even baseball cards, there might be multiple copies of a rookie card of a particularly popular hitter or whatever, but there aren't infinite copies and those copies are physical artifacts that when you reproduce them, you get something other than the original. This is a new space in which reproduction does not doesn't diminish and you don't have the scarcity is completely in someone's mind it's not imposed by the physical world as a condition of the of the physical object 
Uh, I mean, again, uh, like I support people who say, I don't think this is real and I don't like I, I don't buy into this. Um, the problem is you're fighting against a number of very powerful demographic trends. Um, you know, there's been a lot of good research that Zoomers don't differentiate between digital scarcity and physical scarcity. These guys have been, you know, racking up their um, parents' credit card bills since they emerged from the womb these days. And they think that they can spend real money on, you know, have a hotel gold or whatever it may be. Everything about it seems wrapped up in imaginariness. I understand the ways in which we create stories and those stories end up having values and they attach themselves to objects. You know, um, people who say, uh, you know, I'm willing to entertain imaginary values in my real world life for my stuff, but I'm not willing to entertain those values for NFTs. Again, uh, the Zoomers, you're going to be fighting against them. Uh, they overwhelmingly accept it. And so these aren't going away anytime soon. But more importantly, um, you might have to accept it because it's going to become an increasingly important part of your life, too. You know, what happened last year? A pandemic shut us down and we were forced to live a, an increasingly significant portion of our lives digitally. And I don't think it's a mistake that NFTs exploded during that time. When I hear from people, I don't believe in NFTs, like they're not real to me. The, the people who are saying this are just overwhelmingly beautiful, successful humans. Like they have these tremendously fulfilling personal and professional lives. And they're just like, I don't get it. This is strange. Of course you don't get it. You're not the user right now. Do you think I'd be into NFTs if I could like go to clubs and look like you and smell like you? No, I wouldn't. Like I hang out in the metaverse. I, I, I appreciate you uh, you picking up on my smell from the uh, the, the virtual call here. Um, and thank <laughs> the, you for the, the, ambiguous the, you, the not compliment. You, not you. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I do want to get into the metaverse and the connections there with the NFT world in just a moment. We are coming up uh, on a, a break here, though I'm talking with Andrew Thurman about non-fungible tokens and a variety of other things. And in addition to the metaverse, I want to talk about the illusory, possibly illusory nature of the money that is spent on these, because it's not always clear exactly where that is going from or uh, going to, but we'll have to pick that up right after the break. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Andrew Thurman. He is a reporter for Coindesk, which is the number one place to get news about anything and everything related to crypto. And we're talking about NFTs, which are sometimes art objects. And they've made a lot of news because the amount of money spent on them or the amount of money that appears to be spent on them is extraordinarily high, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah, I can look up some figures for you, but yes, the numbers have gone ballistic. There are single collections that are alone worth upwards of a billion dollars at this point. So when you say that a collection is worth over a billion dollars, I think it's worth pointing out that this is something for which we don't have any evidence that people have actually exchanged a billion dollars for. We have evidence that 
people have bid certain amounts and transferred from one account to another. We don't know for sure often who that uh, account is going from and who it's going to. The way that this stuff works is these are numbered accounts. And so it goes from one number to another number. And you can't necessarily say what's really behind that if people are self-dealing, if they are, you know, exchanging money behind the table, if they're pumping things up in particular ways. This is... Uh, there's the storytelling around the artifact and then there's also the storytelling that it has value and that's often based on moving around of zeros and ones that may or may not be connected to anything actually happening in the real world is that right yeah in the realm of nfts the sort of data tracking is very much an emerging science um this is all taking place on a blockchain so you can track things and you know i know very good nft analysts who will tell you there's plenty of hanky panky happening um, however, in some of these larger collections, CryptoPunks for being a great example, um, there's enough liquidity there that you can use a couple metrics to sort of gauge the health of the overall market. Um, one example that we love to use is called floor price. Um, if you think about every Rolex in the world, there are some Rolexes that are more or less expensive than others, but floor price refers to the absolute lowest price at which you can acquire any Rolex at all. And so you can make a guess about the market cap of an entire project by extrapolating based off of the floor price of each of these individual projects. I think that's a really important concept. And one of the things that's important to keep in mind, so the word fungible means that one can replace one thing with anything else of the same kind. So $10 can be replaced with 10 ones. Those things are fungible and it doesn't matter what those individual ones look like as long as they're not marked with indelible ink from a bank because they were stolen. Those 10 ones are as good as any other 10 ones that exist out there. But most assets in the real world, other than currency, actually exist in some state of semi-fungibility. Uh, you can look at something like the real estate market, and you can have a downtown condo in a particular city, a one-bedroom downtown condo in a particular size range, and that's going to be semi-fungible if it's a big enough city, and it will have exactly what you described. It'll have a, a floor, uh, not to have a pun there, but that floor that you live on. It has a baseline per square foot price, and pretty much any, you know, any condo you unit in your city is going to sell for at least that amount. And that is one of the indicators that you have a liquid market is that you know that you can always flip that condo pretty much at any moment for at least $500 a square foot or whatever it is. That's exactly right. And indeed, there are um, lending platforms where you're capable of depositing a floor crypto punk and taking money against that. And um, the punk you get back is you know, these are non-fungible tokens, but honestly, uh, uh, if there's enough volume in a particular collection, a floor object of any collection is functionally interchangeable from a price level uh, from another one. So markets become particularly interesting, actually, when they transition in and out of fungibility or they exist in that kind of semi-fungible state is actually very fascinating to me. There's lots of opportunities for arbitrage in a in a situation like that. And in particular, there's uh, in this particular space, because everything is digital and there are all these kind of derivative things that are being spun off, you have some opportunities for shenanigans, financial plays, whatever 
it is. Maybe you could just give a, an overview of what is the the kind of decentralized finance scene and how is it tied into NFTs and then to what level is it being manipulated or just all about shenanigans? Sure. Um, so that's a tough one to get into. I, I think at the, the simplest level, uh, decentralized finance is built on smart contracts. Um, the easiest way to explain smart contracts uh, a blockchain like Bitcoin is a distributed ledger that keeps track of the movements of Bitcoin. Um, a smart contract platform like Ethereum, in addition to keeping track of the movements of its base layer money, Ether, is also capable of keeping track of these computer programs. So basically, you've got a a, a database versus a sort of a general computer that can execute programs. Uh, I think that's a good way to put it, but you're going to make a lot of Bitcoin folks mad with that. But we'll we'll ignore that. That's fine. Um, uh, these programs can be used to replicate many real-world financial services. Uh, I do my banking with a program called Ave, for instance. It takes money uh, that users deposit, and, and the um, program automatically lets anyone in the world uh, take loans against that money and those deposits. Um, this generates interests and fees, and there's a whole lot of speculation and strange stuff that happens, but ultimately NFTs, um, as digital tokens, can interact with these systems. They can be used as collateral in lending and borrowing. They can be added to pools for decentralized exchange and trading. And um, they, they really seamlessly interact with this growing financial vertical, which itself is now the size of a top 10 American bank. Right. So I think it's worth keeping in mind as you're talking about this. So you're taking an NFT, you're getting collateral, you're doing something with that collateral. This is a closed digital system in terms of the value that's not directly interacting with the outside world. So you are doing things with zeros and ones that are creating more of a particular type of virtual asset that has to come from somewhere and then you're spinning off all of these various things i i have a fairly high tolerance for some of these things but even i at some point go what exactly are we doing here yeah there's a little bit of self-dealing a lot of people use the lending platforms not to take out a home mortgage for instance but simply to leverage up and buy more crypto and speculate and gamble more um i i push back against that general understanding though i think there's increasingly real world um influence and collateral types being used um uh it's not technically a lending platform but for the sake of conversation let's call it one MakerDAO, another one of these folks who will give you collateral in exchange for assets that you deposit um is taking uh is financing a, a solar farm on east long island they've financed the building of a few wawa gas stations like these these systems and functions are being utilized by real world folks. And, you know, you can also withdraw to US dollars at any time. This idea of it is this closed loop system that is funda fundamentally, um, you know, Ponzinomics or uh, uh, triangle uh, uh, marketing in nature. Um, not only was that never true, but that is becoming less true as more real world entities get involved with these programs and with the DeFi ecosystem. I think it's certainly worth noting that uh, whatever one thinks about the value that uh, that these NFTs should have, if it's art, it is art, and this is in a sense creating a new a new genre or a new type of art. And the 
crazy amounts that are being paid for some of these, you know, and the, the millions and millions of dollars for something that is a very low res thing. It, to me, they are in line with kind of long historic trends. The art industry is one of those industries that seems very comfortable with people mocking it within that own industry. You have a long history of that going back to Dada and people taking uh, their own feces, putting in a can and selling it, uh, you know, or signing a urinal and selling it on through Banksy, who, you know, who, who uh, did his own like art as shenanigan, which in a sense was just, you're going to pay me to thumb my nose at you. So there is a sense in which the NFTs, even if they're crazy inflated values, and even if those are real, uh, they are real art in the sense that the art community seems to thrive on a, a certain level of this um sort of we're we're doing art that is mocking the very idea of art <laughs> i mean it's true i like it it's you know also i i like any framing of nfts that a acknowledges that they're fundamentally absurd but the things that kind of inspired them and the uh skeuomorphism which is this term for when something in a digital land uh represents something in the physical world or something that has come before um the skeuomorphism is there. Like they're, they're absurd because it's art that's on a blockchain. And guess what else is absurd? That's art. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's interesting if you look through and you see all the ways in which various artists have kind of poked fun at their own uh, media um, as, as they go along. So I just wanted to note that and, and say that very much the, these are art, even if they are uh, highly low res and even if one could just you know, save them to the desktop at any moment. Um, so I, I wouldn't dismiss them as art. The question about whether uh, they are scarce is is a is a different one. Um, but they also serve that function of art that we alluded to earlier, in that it is something that I can point to and go, "I own this," and that makes me cool. That would be the the simplified uh, way of putting flexing, as you put it, right? It's a way to do that, um, which I think brings us to maybe the most recent interesting kind of use of those uh, as a, as a display of of intentions, which was in the metaverse. What is the metaverse? Um, a persistent digital world that is interoperable against uh, through and among various ip intellectual and legal boundaries um that that was an interesting uh <laughs> description uh, uh, another another one of those uh, technical terms that i'm sure will clear everything up for your listeners right um one one easy way to think about the metaverse is uh through recent media about it it was uh inspired by 1992 novel snow crash which went on to become what was the name of that movie the one where the kid the iron giants punching godzilla this idea of this virtual world where lots of different, uh, you know, intellectual properties and brands can come together, but um, you're capable of actually owning, probably via blockchain technology, all of the items within that world anyone can play at any time with an internet connection. An immersive virtual world that you can put on a set of goggles and navigate in some way, maybe with some additional things over time, like, uh, like, uh, gloves that give you feedback or things like that yeah you can do the ar vr stuff um you know i i've seen a lot of interesting arguments that facebook uh, before it rebranded to meta and did this big company pivot they're now a metaverse company they say they already were a metaverse it was you know this digital interface where you could play a ton of different games and you know you could interact with all your friends at the same time 
there's a lot of different interpretations of what it is, what it will look like, and what it already looks like. Um, but a a big, big video game where you can own stuff on the blockchain is a very rough explanation. Also, I should note that this is uh, one of the things that I talk about at uh, mattasher.substack.com. I go into an analysis of how the metaverse by Facebook is going to have to play out uh, just based on what they're trying to accomplish and what they're going to face in terms of the real world things that people are going to try to do there and how they're going to have to react to that and the various different balances that they're going to have to strike. It is uh, one of the interesting things about a, a lot of the things that happened in the crypto world right now, as opposed to in the side, the walled gardens of Facebook, is that uh, in in the context of Facebook, Facebook gets to set the rules. They get to decide by uh, by fiat uh, what the rules of engagement are for interactions within that world. The ethos within the crypto space is much more anything you can get away with doing, you can do. Um, which is a, a much less constrained situation. And I think actually you see that playing out within the NFT space. People are exploring all the various possibilities of, uh, and that is to some extent where you get those shenanigans. Yeah, that sounds about right. I know a lot of the founders and the builders who I talk to are worried about the Facebook interpretation because a lot of the cool things that you can do in a hypothetical um, metaverse like uh, CryptoVoxels, which is a cool little city that people built, anyone can go visit right now. Um, you know, anybody can put anything on a, on a, on a painting and throw it up on a wall in this, uh, you know, virtual architecture, but in Facebook, they're going to have to enforce certain legal things. They're going to have to, you know, follow various real world laws. There's going to be an entity there that can be taken down. It's going to, there, there, there's probably going to be two metaverses, right? There's going to be the legally compliant one. And then there's going to be this, this dirtier, grungier and much more low res one where I'd argue a lot of the more interesting stuff is going to be happening. Right. And the goal of Facebook will be to drive as much as possible to the to their own walled garden where freedom of speech, so to speak, doesn't really exist. It only exists to the extent that it is compatible with the particular vision that they have uh, and what they want to do. And there's there's some balancing acts that they're going to have there. But they certainly have a lot of money and and power, both political and economic, at their disposal in order to encourage people or twist their arms or whatever you want to call it to to engage in uh, in various activities within this metaverse that they are uh, spending a lot of money and resources building. Yeah, the you know they're they're often criticized, and I think at times rightfully for being you know just woefully dystopian when it comes to certain surveillance things. When they were a social media company, I think people who understand the metaverse and see these long-term demographic trends, where you know young people are spending increasing percentages of their time and money online, and uh, the whole world is occasionally being forced to spend more of its time and money online. When you think about a Facebook-run metaverse, um that that's almost even more dangerous and worrying than some of the stuff that they've done with social media. Um, and, and frankly, a lot of people in the sort of free metaverse world, I guess if you could call it that, are, are scrambling to, to outcompete Facebook now. Cause I think, you know, people who are in the know and genuinely believe to be the metaverse to be, you know, the future of where a lot of human commerce activity and cultural action happens. Um, it's, it's a, it's a game to beat Facebook right now. 
they're worried and very, very rightfully. Yeah. So we've got to take another break here. I did want to tie in how the, the NFTs and the Facebook metaverse thing came together. I'll do that uh, right after the break. And then we will get into exactly how it is that the metaverse is going to turn very, very dark. Welcome back to the Matt Asher Radio Show. I am talking with Andrew Thurman, a reporter for uh, Coindesk, one of the, the top sites out there for news about all things related to cryptography and NFTs, which we were talking about. And in particular, Facebook has a new project. Actually, they're now called Meta, and they've got something called the Metaverse, and they released this kind of teaser video. And in it, one of the things that was featured was NFT. So what's going on there? What is the connection between this virtual metaverse world and the quasi art world of NFTs? So I'm sure a lot of your listeners out there have kids and many of them have uh, woken up to surprise bills uh, on their phones because, uh, you know, their children have run off and bought these weird digital objects, be they gold or cosmetics in some video game. Um, and the meta, what that gives you right now is, you know, this stupid thing that doesn't last very long. It has no utility. And when the video game company goes under, the object disappears too. One of the great promises of digital ownership in the metaverse is that because these digital items will be based on blockchain, that even if one game fails, one part of the metaverse fails, you can still port those digital items over to some other game or some other universe. Um, there are already examples of this with um, Metaverse Fashion. Uh, Crypto Kickers is a company where you can wear some uh, streetwear-inspired NFTs on your avatar's feet in Decentraland, and then you can take those same shoes over into Crypto Voxels. And no matter where you go, as long as you have that NFT, you get to wear your your virtual representation of you gets to wear the item. Uh, you can also sell it. You can own real estate for, you can store your clothes, your digital clothes on your digital real estate. And it hypothetically opens up a whole lot more utility for digital goods and a whole lot more freedom for what you can do with it in the metaverse. And so Facebook in their little trailer, they had one of these NFTs on the, the wall as, as they were wandering through. And this was, uh, I guess, getting back to that idea of flexing a way of saying, Oh, I'm, I'm very cool. I'm so cool. I have an NFT on the wall, uh, there uh, of some kind, uh, and therefore worthy of some sort of respect. Before we, the break, I was talking about the ways in which I think that the metaverse, if it, if it achieves what, uh, what, Meta or Facebook wants of it, it is almost certainly going to be dystopian. But it's not going to start out that way. It's going to start out with the promise of allowing you to access services in a virtual way that is that is attractive, just in the way that Facebook allowed businesses to have pages that provided information, and that was helpful for uh, consumers to get uh, information about a variety of different businesses within that space. We recently have an announcement from Barbados related to their embassy. That's right. Uh, Coindesk uh, broke this news. Um, that was yesterday morning. I wrote an article about how Barbados is going to be 
the first nation on earth to recognize digital sovereign land. They are going to purchase uh, metaverse real estate and build an embassy there. They're going to do this through several virtual worlds, um, multiple uh, different um, metaverse companies, and there's going to be a little uh, uh, Barbadian em uh, embassy or consulate in each of these worlds that'll give you um, various uh, uh, embassy services. You'll be able to enjoy some Barbadian culture um, or uh, uh, even e-visas, which uh, I don't know this for sure. They've uh, made it clear this is going to be the staging ground for some bigger plans. Um, but I suspect uh, you might be able to get some sort of uh, virtual business license uh, that's taxed via Barbados um, uh, uh, through these consulates or these embassies. So really bizarre stuff, but apparently it'll be legal under the Geneva Convention. Oh, that's interesting. I guess um, huh, maybe we'll pick up on that in a moment. But one of the 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 promise of this, of course, is that you will have access to services and in a in a way that is better than what we have right now with telephone. You'll have some kind of simulated three D world in which you can uh, communicate, I guess, with the avatar of someone uh, from the embassy who's going to be helpful to you and guide you through these various processes. Uh, you will be doing that inside of of the world that they've constructed, which of course means that you could also be at any time excluded from that world. So the the carrot here for all these services is that you will have access, maybe they will set up special appointments that are metaverse only, right? So they'll have a certain amount of appointments at their actual counter at their embassy in Miami, and then a certain number of those appointments will be reserved for people who walk in through the their door in the metaverse. That's exactly right, yeah. And I know a lot of these digital companies are looking for a uh, jurisdiction to incorporate out of that is friendly to them. And um, again, my personal suspicion, I don't know this for sure, is that uh, this is going to be Barbados's play at doing this, right? You can come to this virtual embassy and um, talk about obtaining some kind of business license. Which I can certainly see the attraction there. And of course, Facebook has, a, as we discussed, a, a an almost infinite amount of money to encourage governments and private businesses to set these things up. And as they shift over more and more resources to providing help in these virtual environments, which are uh, almost certainly going to be cheaper than, you know, than one of those big embassy buildings that's highly secured and, you know, and staffed with all these people in person, there's going to be a lot of reasons for businesses to want to uh, join in on this trend. It may become, and in fact, if Facebook has its way, will become much harder to actually get services without being part of the metaverse. Mm. Yeah, that, that basic path makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I hadn't thought about that before, and now I'm even more depressed than I was. Thanks, man. <laughs> what, was, what had you depressed before? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the idea, if you if you wandered around some of these worlds, and I would encourage your listeners to, Decentraland, CryptoVoxels, uh, CryptoVoxels in particular is built by a lot of early NFT and metaverse pioneers. It's, you know, this kind of rinky-dink little city, but it's uh, there's clearly a lot of passion there, and it's fully decentralized. Anybody can visit. Anybody can participate. When I think about a Facebook-run version of CryptoVoxels, just like the number of ads, how they can control certain content, you know, the the spamming your experience with these AI bots trying to sell you stuff, and gathering your personal information the whole time. How long did your avatar spend looking at, you know, object A instead of object B? The sheer amount of A-B testing they can do to, to, you know, 
better uh, uh, brainwash you into buying things in the metaverse. It's a terrifying thought. What they're selling essentially is a dopamine machine of, of some kind to use that that term in the colloquial sense of dopamine as a kind of as a light up your brain hit what what they're primarily so there's i guess there's two things that they're selling one is kind of the, that that carrot one is the stick the carrot is that if you are in this world you will be able to do things you can't do in the real world and you will get all kinds of these these dopamine hits from experiences that you can have in this virtual world the the stick is that if you're not in there you may not be able to get an appointment at an embassy or be able to access services over time. Yeah. And I mean, again, there's this alternative metaverse that's being built outside of Facebook's, right? Inside Facebook's walled garden, as you put it. And, you know, how long until they say anybody who participates in the one that isn't under our jurisdiction, they can't come into ours anymore? You you, you quickly get into, you know, a very bleak Black Mirror episode. Um, and again, uh, the the folks who have been working on the metaverse for a long time are now actively racing against Facebook to get attention, mind share, and try and prevent this kind of corporate dystopian version of the metaverse from happening. I wonder to what extent that other version avoids that. One of the things that's inevitable in a system like this is some kind of karma. Every system that we have online ultimately has some sort of point system or karma or whatever else it is. In the case of the metaverse, this this tracks very closely with social credit score, essentially. Your your value as a good citizen of the metaverse. And I certainly see how that would happen with the metaverse. I don't know that I wouldn't see it happening with other projects as well. You, I, I can't think of a, a system, any kind of forum or whatnot that has started Started up and become popular that doesn't ultimately have some sort of a good citizenship score that can be manipulated in various ways. You know, I'd say that decentralized finance does present an alternative. Um, the uh, uh, protocol I referred to earlier in the show, Ave, um, it allows anyone in the world to take a loan without any kind of know your customer or background check or anti money laundering procedure. Uh, all you need is an internet connection and you need to download one of any two dozen Ethereum wallets and you can go get a loan from Aave. Um, the way they do it, however, is uh, uh, the loans are based on collateral. Uh, in order to get the loan, you do need to deposit uh, some kind of fund that can then be slashed if you don't pay back your loan. Um, and and this, is, this, is a, 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 this idea of openness and permissionlessness is one that a lot of DeFi people throw around a lot. And I think a lot of the folks building the metaverse want to make sure that that maintains that ideals, that you know, the, uh, a bank can't say no to you based off of your skin color. A bank can't say no to you based off of your credit score. Uh, a metaverse shouldn't turn people away uh, based off of any metric whatsoever. That is something fundamental to decentralized finance and to a lot of these NFT and metaverse projects and something that Facebook is actively doing the opposite of and will inevitably, um, you know, antagonize that system and be fighting against it. 
That issue of, of staking or collateral is, is fairly interesting. What has tended to happen over time in the, in the real world is that that kind of staking has become increasingly tied to these virtual scores, like your credit score, right? What you're staking, if I, if you go get a loan is sometimes the actual house, but if it's a business or something where there isn't necessarily much collateral being put up, what you're staking is in effect your, your reputation, your score. Uh, and, and so it's interesting to think about the extent to which that's going to map itself onto these various projects, whether it's Facebook's or the others that you're mentioning. Yeah, my hope is that it'll be community-based, right? I, I think of Ave as this third alternative to corporate structures and to government structures. You know, governments, uh, uh, the U.S. government tries to help with uh, mortgages, right? We have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, uh, corporations are willing to give you mortgages, too. And yet we have a hideous history of redlining and just, you know, permit pernicious lending activity based on gender, creed, uh, religion, any number of factors. But a protocol-based lending system, you know, that's that's something that should be there. And I think over time it'll become obvious that that was always a human right, that there needs to be a neutral financial infrastructure rail for people um, to make sure that they can't be discriminated against based off of any metric. However, um, if you do, if you don't have the social credit score, right, if you don't have the reputation, then how do you start from zero? And my suspicion is that there will be community groups who, um, you know, build their own credit worthiness, uh, and they're the ones who deposit into the protocol, and they're the ones who then um, give out the loans. Uh, again, that's a very egalitarian uh, view of it that doesn't currently work. In order to get a loan from Ave right now, you unfortunately need to start rich. But um, as as with so many things in <laughs> right. in life, uh, just so the listeners know, as I say in the intro, uh, this is also wrapped up in a podcast and posted to mattasher.com where you can download this episode and previous episodes, including uh, another one where I spoke with a different Coin Desk reporter about. Uh, did you did you uh, catch the Adam B. Levine uh, one? Yeah, yeah. We we talked about uh, the reversing transactions uh, on his and Compound. I wrote about uh, I wrote about the Compound hack as well. That was a really interesting one. A really interesting one. Yeah. At any rate, we're about out of time here, Andrew. Where can people read more of your writings and, and find out more about the your what you're up to? I would encourage everybody to check out uh, check out the um, Barbados story on Coindesk.com. And I have a fun one coming out next week. Uh, two well-known internet communities are going to war. Crypto and furries. Uh, uh, they're fighting over NFTs, and I'm going to have a story about that in the next few days. Excellent, excellent. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on. It was really my pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me.